everybody, and welcome back to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. Man, does it feel good to say that. With me today, as always, is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friends, Charles. Yes, we say friends because, again, we are back with our very good friends, Robert V.S. Reddick and Blaze from Under the Radar Books. Um, Robert, thank you so much for coming back. I'm so happy to be back. Thanks uh, for having me. Yes, and I, I've got words I have to share with you in just a <laughs> moment. But before we get there, uh, I wanted to make sure we say hello to Blaze from Under the Radar Books. Blaze, thank you for coming back as well. Super excited to have you on. Uh, thanks, Charles and Dylan and Robert. Really glad to talk about book two because, ooh, is it a ride that needs to be talked about? Uh, I know, I know, <laughs> a ride indeed. <laughs> Before we get into it, just want to make clear, yes, we are continuing our read-along that started way back in December, uh, and now we are here on book two of the Chatherine Voyage Quartet by Robert V.S. Reddick himself. We are talking about the ruling sea or the rats in the ruling sea, if you're a uh, reading a UK edition, and we're at the halfway mark. Here we are. Before we can get into the book discussion, though, Dylan, would you like to take us through one of your uh, trademark spoiler warning uh, runs? I'd love to, Charles. So we'll be covering the rats in the ruling sea or the ruling sea in full here with spoilers fair game for the first two books here. So if you haven't yet read the uh, Red the Red Wolf Conspiracy you know, and the Ruling Sea yet, then now's a good time to turn this down in your headphones and go catch up on the Chatherine Voyage before we get started on book three. Very well said, yes. And check out the Discord as well, under the Radar Books Discord, where we're still talking about books one and two. You know, I think people are starting the readings at different time and still getting comments in the Red Wolf Conspiracy section, and that's always fun. So definitely check that out as well. And now that spoilers are on the table, Robert, we need to talk about Sasha at the beginning of this book. <laughs> well, all right. I, I, you had me all over the place emotionally, Robert. So I guess well done. But um, man, I remember when we ended the book one discussion and you said, you know, the whole book was about the wedding and that you had originally or at one point thought you were going to end this book with this final, this wedding. And then you decided not to and ended it on this kind of more optimistic note and start book two with the wedding. Well, I can kind of see why now, because you started book two <laughs> with the uh, air quotes, death of Sasha. And uh, I was fully committed to the idea that she was dead. I really thought she was gone. So <laughs> was that like a big part of your decision to start book two with the wedding instead of ending it was you didn't want this like, oh, she's dead, the end. Like, was that a huge part of not wanting to end book one with the wedding? Yeah, it was. It really was. That's that's fair to say. And but even more than that, what I realized was when my original plan was to have the wedding scene be the, you know, the climax of book one. By the time I'd set everything up, I realized, damn, that that wedding and the complications from that wedding are going to sprawl. And they're they're. And it's going to open up too much 
you know, I, yeah, there's, there's a cliffhanger of a sort at the end of book one in that, you know, you know, the, the wedding is the next morning, mm-hmm. but you couldn't really, you know, as I thought about it, anything that happened at the wedding was, was going to, you know, wherever I chose to put my finger down and say, the book ends here. Once I'd started that wedding, it was going to feel a bit like a cheat, I think, because, you know, so much kind of gets propelled into action at the wedding too. It's not really an ending. It's a, it's a, you know, it's like that moment when you're playing pool at the very first moment, you crack all the balls and they're flying in different directions. You don't want to start, you don't, you don't want to end a book right when you crack all the balls and, and they're flying. So, mm. oh yeah. But, but Sasha's quote unquote death. Yeah, that's true too. Um, and I totally understand now, you know, um, because we had some sort of spoiler territory talk last time, I know that, you know, you and some other people knew that a, a significant death was coming. Right. But you didn't know which one. And so when, when <laughs> Sasha, and yeah, here we are in spoiler territory, you know, when, when she is um, just about strangled and needs the world to think that she's strangled to get out of the trap that Arunas has set for everybody. Naturally enough, if you're expecting a death, you know, it's easier to believe that it's Sasha. But I couldn't have done that. She's too <laughs> central, you know. I mean. I was so committed. He did. I was like, man, what a brave choice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, things I like that flitted through my mind now and then across mm-hmm. the series, but that, I don't think it would have been fair, you know, because there's a way you can signal when you're writing that um, the investment you're asking the reader to make is of a certain magnitude. And, you know, I, I can think like a classic example is the death of Edward Stark early in the um a Song of Ice and Fire. And when I look back on that, I can see George R. R. Martin's, you know, fairly brilliant um, foresight. And, and, you know, he may have engineered it in reverse. It may have mm-hmm. snuck up and surprised him. And then he had to go back and make it fit better. That's certainly possible. And that's, you mm-hmm. know, the beauty of revision. But, um, but I think that he, he does give you a real sucker punch. But when you look back at it, it makes great, great sense that Eddard Stark died. I mean, it sucks. <laughs> and it makes great sense. I think that the, uh, Sasha's death here might have had a similar shock value, but it wouldn't have made the same sense. Because you're, you know, I, I think book one promises that your journey with Sasha is going to be more significant and have more resonance and last longer. And it would have, it would have been, it would have been cheap, I guess, in the end, you know, for her really to be dead at this stage. Yeah, I agree completely. And uh, Blaze Dillon, this is your second times reading through this series. I'm wondering, maybe Blaze, what was your, um, what was it like revisiting some of these gut punch moments of this book? Were there some things that you saw that were maybe foreshadowed in earlier books that you were only able to catch through your second reread? What was that experience like? Well, since we're on the subject of the wedding, just going back and rereading it, I had completely forgotten that the wedding is has several different layers where it's looked at from several different perspectives. It's through Thasha and Pazel's perspective. And then you get another perspective with uh, with Nada. 
and looking at looking at her brother, who she doesn't know it's her brother yet, <laughs> and what's going on through her mind. You have it through the prince and what's going on in his mind. You have it through Arunas, what's going on in his mind. And that one um, scene, it's the first several chapters, it sets the tone for the rest of the book and what different factions are going to come into play and how everything just grows from there. That I had completely forgotten and how much there's like little hints and clues for what's to what's to come. That just blew me away. And there's more stuff later, which I'm sure we'll get into, but I don't want to, I don't want to bombard everybody with that just quite yet. <laughs> sure. I'm sure we'll get into it. But Dylan, you had mentioned before that you had caught some, some foreshadowing of this scene. What was it like revisiting this, this impactful moment right at the beginning of book two? Yeah. Well, I'll say my first time reading it, those who have listened to the first episode know Fosh is my favorite character. So I'll say, Robert, you had me going and I was pretty <laughs> upset. I, I remember reading like super fast to be like, no, no, she can't be. But <laughs> so I was happy when you had her be okay. And I'll say that uh, something I really appreciate foreshadowing wise is that a, a fake death can be a really cheap ploy if not done correctly and i think that something or at least foreshadowed or in some way a uh hinted at and what i really like is that this is not the first time that we've seen this extol technology used it's actually it appears in the red wolf conspiracy already so we know this exists and i love i love when authors use what's already on the board, if you will, and say, hey, you could have figured out this plan yourself. You had all the information. If <laughs> if you were sitting at the little council meeting there trying to decide how they can get Dasha out of this, and you actually appreciate, oh, wow, this was really clever by our team here to use something we already know about in a way that I, I didn't think, oh, they should use that technology or anything like that. Right. So yeah, good on you, Robert. Uh, and it was from message. the X-Gel as well, which many people just, if they see them, will try and kill them and think of them as vermin. So, you know, it's that another layer on that too. They're I have to admit, I remember being really happy about that aspect of it. Yeah, that it was, um, it was because the characters had the um, kind of broadness of mind and, and empathy to get over their prejudice uh, about the Ixchel and, and befriend them and make an alliance with some of them that everything didn't end in disaster. You know, without that courage, they couldn't have gotten out of Arunus's trap. So it was, it really was a case where, you know, a stronger together situation like, um, like Ramachni is saying at the end of book one, Mm -hmm. And um, I also yeah. like too that it's through their like again we we kind of talked about communication language as being a big part of the books but I just like that the fact that Pazel is able to talk to the Ixgel and like have the um, empathy and just the ability to actually talk to them and learn from them and that makes them stronger and actually able to thwart Arunus and, and this, trick Arunus. So I was very impressed by that. Another thing while we're talking about like, how do you do the fake death situation without it coming off, you know, 
kind of like, oh, okay, kind of tropey. But what I love about this, you know, fake death was how long you had us wait until you made the reveal that she was actually alive. I mean, you had everyone's like kneeling over her body, crying. You paraded her out of the place, paraded her uh, back to the ship. You had the replacement wedding. You, you, like, I was so committed she was dead because it's just that you rarely you wait as long. Usually it's like, oh no, is he really dead? And you poke him and it's like, no, I'm okay. It's like, oh, <laughs> you know, rarely do you keep us waiting for like, what I guess is hours of hours of time or like a day of time in the book where you're like, wow, she's really dead. And they do the whole funeral <laughs> procession and the dad thinks he, she's dead. And it's like, I'll never forgive myself and then all this other stuff. And it's like, whoa, heavy. Oh, heavy. the poor dad. <laughs> he gets. I mean, yeah, he, he's the last to find out the truth. You know, and in fact, yeah, he doesn't find out in this book. Yeah, um, Eberzam, uh, yeah. Eberzam, Eberzam Zeke. Zeke. Yeah. yeah, he's a uh, he gets it's, his story is like a horror story when his chapters come up, where he's just uh, in that basement there with all the statues and like the threat of like, oh, you'll you'll be interested in those soon enough when you're sitting here in the dark long enough. It's like a really threatening, like scary kind of dehumanizing moment for him you know so it's like oh anything i remember when i was writing those chapters (laughs) and his daughter's thinking his daughter's dead the whole time yeah and the four and he's addicted to the drug to death smoke and they're torturing him with it torturing him with the darkness yeah those those chapters with ezeke um i remember as i wrote them thinking hmm this has become partly a horror novel here (laughs) Um, I would agree completely. Yeah, about the wedding, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't clever enough to think, oh, good, I'm drawing out how long people think she's dead. It was, it was much more practical than that, because they're not out of trouble unless they can get her back on the ship. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I actually, I had a lot of trouble, trouble with that logistically, because right. it's like, she can't just like keel over and then like go in a back room and wake up. That'll never work. You know, there's like, you know, there's like a hundred thousand people or, or, you know, however many it was, 50,000 people, worshipers and crowded all around her. Mm-hmm. There's, she cannot sneak away anywhere realistically. So I had to make them like carry her. But she couldn't really like pretend to be dead either. You know, once the necklace came off, she couldn't then just pretend to be dead. It's like, no, because she's still yeah. getting like examined and like mm-hmm. she needs to be cold and no pulse. Yeah. And they need to like put her, you know, do the whole funeral procession thing. You, you can't fake that. Yeah. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I can see how logistically that would be a challenge, but it it paid off, I think, because it was really an unconventional like, oh, I'm not really dead thing, you know, because we're just with the the corpse for so long (laughs) and we had the funeral and everything so that was a a great scene one of the things I wanted to make sure I asked you Robert was you know from the last from the last episode that we recorded on book one you said something that stuck with me and I'm going to quote you from our episode and then ask you a question so this was talking about how you were like writing the plotting and you had like this concept of writing a mystery while writing a four book mystery right yeah you have to have the destination clear and sharp in your sights 
but you can discover things about your characters that help you get there as you go. And I got the sense that you had more specific examples of the characters kind of changing on you while you were writing later in the series. And I was wondering if there were any moments that happened in book two where the characters kind of grew away from your from your destination, right? If, if there's some characters kind of surprised you in this book. Yes, so many. In fact, I think more did than, than didn't. Um, mm. And um, I mean, one we already started talking about was Eberzan Muzik, Sasha's father. Uh, he, he just, um, he was this sort of complicating figure and, you know, to some degree, a pillar of strength, to some degree, sort of an ornery old man figure in book one. In this one, because there are chapters with, with Eberzam alone, he, he really had a chance to, to flower. And, um, and he surprised me a lot in that I always saw him as, you know, Sasha's, difficult ally, you know, her protector, but also a protector who doesn't get her with it, you know, vast difference in their ages, you know, he's an old father and so on. But what, what I began to perceive in book two, and it continues with this one, and it continues in, um, in the River of Shadows and the last book, The Night of the Swarm, is his own destiny that's related to Tasha's, but in a way, it, it's, I guess I can't quite say it's equally important, but it's it's also vital. It's vital to the world, and it is a it's a different trajectory than anyone else's in from our original cast. Um, and it was only as I learned about, you know, he he too has an imagination that's broad enough to imagine his own life and his role in the world changing in really fundamental ways. Um, but st and also the strength of character from where he comes from to to be able to say, okay, I'm an old man, but I'm still strong. I've been through this. I've been through this. I've been through this. And despite the horrors I'm going through, and principally here, you know, that I believe I have contributed to the death of the daughter who I love more than anyone else on, on the face of the earth, I, I am still going to soldier on. So he grew in that way. I guess it wasn't like a shocking twist in his behavior, but he, he grew. Now, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember if uh, uh, Jervik, how, how much Jervik begins to change in this one or if that's later. But can you, you tell get, me? You get Jervik basically saying he wants to turn his life around and become yeah. part of the good guys. But I don't think he really, he, he contributes a little, but I don't think he really gets any dramatic moments of being a good guy now. But we get the sense he's moving in the right direction, if I'm remembering correctly. There was one conversation with Pazzle that they had where he was yeah. explaining why he wanted to change sides. You know, he went from being mm. a bully to now seeing the light kind of thing. And I enjoyed that too, because as I recall, it only made it was it only convinced me when I realized that he had a certain degree of self-loathing, self-loathing that was um, only becoming clear to him as he, you know, he'd become a pretty marginal figure. That you know, he was just a bully, and on the scale of things, being a bully just didn't mean much anymore, right? right. His, his his bullying is so insignificant, and even he could just see that. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so it, that actually pleased me. But then, you know, the one who really gets to take off here, maybe more than anyone else is Felthrop. Um, and Felthrop begins his, um, his really fundamental dream journeys and his, his long-standing duel with Arunas in, in this book. And so I think that um, he's, he actually becomes uh, revealed to have all kinds of strength. I mean, we knew he was plucky and, <laughs> and you know, kind and clever, but I think, uh, I think Feltrop the Rat here maybe you know, has a reckoning with himself that's more, more immense than anyone else's. Arguably, Diadrelu and, and Hercol, that, that's certainly, a, that's something I didn't see coming, the two of them, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I'm referring, I guess, you know, no reason to be coy about it, I'm referring to, you know, Hercol, the normal-sized human being, and the Adrelu, the eight-inch-tall yeah. woman, falling madly in love with each other, <laughs> and not just platonic love either. Yeah, that was um, that was uh, one of those. Am I really gonna go there? And then it was like you can't just sort of half go there. So I thought it was great. You know, love is blind. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I got a few emails back then from people that were like just. All right, all right. So how do they? You know what I mean. How do they? You know, and just kind of What's left the left anatomy left. of that. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> that's one diagram that's not on your uh, website, Robert. You have the whole ship drawn <laughs> out, but uh, <laughs> yeah, some things no, you no just extra have to... information on that. <laughs> yeah, but I think in a way they were perfect for each other in terms of their personalities. You know, so proud and both loners both kind of alienated from people around them and yet people around them need them so desperately and this bit yeah. of this like they're honorable in a way too even though they're kind of mm-hmm. on the outskirts yeah i mean Herr cole had been a spy who was formed with a certain ideology that was like you know driven straight through his personality he managed to break with that for the greater good and 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 Diadrelu too, although you know it happened at some point long before we get to know her, probably that she, you know, she understood we can't just hate human beings. We have to do better than that. No matter what they've done to us, we have to, you know, we have to look for the good in them, or we're not going to get anywhere. Uh, we're interdependent. You know? so. Right, and that's a controversial take. <laughs> mm. so, hmm. Yeah, it's true, and. That that was another just touching moment there that watching their relationship blossom and then just get um, so brutally ripped away. And with that, I wanted to ask you, Blaze, um, you had, you know, teased a few other shocking moments that come up here in the book. I just wanted to turn it over to you. And if you wanted to share another particular moment in this book that stuck out with you and maybe we can we can get into it and pick Robert's brain on it some more. Yeah, well, we already touched on Feltrop and what he goes through with mm-hmm. with Arunas in his dreams, and he's he's afraid to fall asleep because he's going to get tortured. But he, if he can't fall asleep, he turns into a wreck while he's on the ship. That dynamic was 
fantastic. But what really struck me, and more so on the reread, was um, learning of Nada, uh, Pazel's sister. So she's referenced a bit in the first book, but mostly in it, well, actually entirely in Pazel's past or his memories. We don't know what happened to her. Now we do. We get her backstory and the brutal stuff she had to endure to get where she is and the sacrifices that she has to make to do what what needs to be done. She's a, she's a fond score. I believe that's how you say it. At least that's how the audiobook said it. Um, and after the attack from the, uh, the demon on the ship, kills the, the head priest and just it goes off from there. I was really struck with Nada. And I was just, actually, I wanted to ask you, Robert, like, what was your backstory for Nada? And how did you come up with her um, as like a central, central character? And what was, was it difficult writing her backstory, I would say? It was difficult, um, but it, you know, it came pretty smoothly, I guess. It was a lot of work. It was a hell of a lot of work. But um, when I realized that I had an opportunity at the start of this book to um, kind of flip the, uh, the angle of perception and let us, you know, in all of book one, we're in the minds of people who have been one way or another living in the empire of Arkwall. And um, there's this other pole of power in the world, at least in the Northern hemisphere, you know, which is the Mazithran Kings, the other empire. And we're, we're sort of bombarded with all the prejudices and beliefs about the Mazithrini, the Mazithran King and their empire in book one. And I knew that I wanted to sort of give a, a chance to blow that up or at least see how much more complex that was. And to do that, I needed a, um, an insider, uh, an inside perspective. Um, and I also knew that, uh, you know, I think I'd set things up pretty overtly that what happened to Nada when, um, Arqual invaded uh, Pazel's homeland of Ormail was was a big mystery that was was uh, tormenting Pazel to this day. So it was um, it was kind of natural to want to satisfy that. And yeah, I mean, she would just turn out to be a really good vehicle to to unite these these things. I mean, it, it, I'm making it sound like it was you know a conscious and sort of logical choice, but it was more subconscious than that. I was I was just curious about her. Um, and I think that my process with beginnings is kind of torturous, but I just, I just try so many things out first in my head, you know, lying awake, then scratches of notes, then little dabs of text that might turn into a chapter and many of them don't work and so on. And then when things start to work, I just go with it. And, um, sort of in parentheses here, I wanted to say, you know, I was thinking about what writers might find most interesting about my reflections. And I think when it comes to this book, that was a real lesson I learned. This is, this is actually the third novel that I completed. You know, I wrote one that wasn't in the Chatrand Voyage um, before this. But um, so I was starting to not be quite so mystified about the process. but. Um, 
what, what I think I figured out this time around is that when things start to work, you just need to let them work. You have to be willing to follow the story, even if it diverges from your plans a lot. You, know, you got to let it grow, breathe. You should be prepared to chase after it if it decides it's going to scale a mountain that you hadn't really planned to scale, uh, as long as it's good, you know. And and I'm so glad that that was the way I worked with this book because this really was the book where everyone grows up. I mean, all the younger characters become, I think, much more complex characters and much more adult very quickly in this book. You know, they perceive a sort of vacuum of ethics and responsibility in a lot of the adults. And they know what's going to happen if they don't rise to the occasion, and they do. Um, and, and this is the book, too, where the scale of the story became clear to me. Um, the scale of the world, the scale of the plot, the scale of the, the, you know, the mystery within a mystery, conspiracy within a conspiracy. So this is a long way of getting back to Nada. Yeah, Nada, um, I guess, although I couldn't have seen it this clearly at first, she was a very efficient way to do a lot of things that I needed to do. Um, both for the story, for the characterization, and for helping the reader see the world in its in its richness, I guess. Yeah, it's true because the the world really does start to open up in this book for a lot of reasons. They're they're going on a huge expedition and all that, but the addition of Nada really helps you see more of the other side, and also just another branch that stemmed from. Hazel's beginning as well it's like they both had this horrible thing happen to them and they both got ripped into totally two other circumstances situations and uh it's interesting to just see them kind of coexist and not even knowing it you know it's so it's a really interesting relationship that they have in this book and it's interesting how you say that all of these characters like characters kind of grow up in this book because I actually had written down that compared to book one which was a, a lot of really great plotting and conspiracy on top of conspiracy but it seemed like this book really took the time to um get these characters to where they needed to go and really uh, kind of explore who these people are and what their relationships are and they all had challenges and they all had to grow up really fast and I know Dylan you're a huge uh, huge fan of character and characterization in novels I was wondering if I, I know you're your team Thasha all the way but I was wondering <laughs> if there was some other moments of characterization that that really stuck out for you uh, in, in this book that you maybe want to want to share pick Robert's brain yeah I feel like all the characters definitely grow up a lot I appreciated yeah I think uh Feifengert is a character that I, I like a lot and seeing his journals is something that I think is is really cool and seeing how he's like the one adult that's consistently like on point with the the kids here. I don't, I don't know if they're really kids. What Puzzle turned 17 in this one. So mm. you know, he's he's actually a really good guy. I appreciate that. Uh, the the other the character that maybe sticks out as getting more development that I'd, I'd ask about I think though is probably Chad Fellow I think that he's someone who uh, you I always appreciate he's 
this morally gray character here and you don't really know where he stands with Pazel. At first you think that he's uh, like almost this father figure. Then it starts to seem like he's uh, this person who's just been using Pazel and he's just been a ploy and all this stuff when Ott and the crew take him out to use his gift and all that. So I guess what I'd ask is, uh, how do you keep the mystery around Chad Fellow? And did you always kind of know where his arc was going and where he stood, uh, Robert? I think I knew where he was morally, but Chad Fellow was one of those cases where because I couldn't figure it out to my own satisfaction, I just I just didn't and went with it for a while. I mean, th there were things I knew, and yet I knew that I didn't know enough, if that makes any sense. I knew that um, he had his reasons. I could perceive some of them. I couldn't perceive all of them. And I couldn't resolve that yet. So the best I could do, unless I just wanted to just like have him fall down a shaft and die or something, I had to sort of build that frustration into those who dealt with him, and you know, particularly puzzle, but um, and trust that it would become clearer, and it did, you know, and and it does, I think, um, so that um, I think by the end of the story, you really do understand his reasons and and his loneliness. You know, he um, he's one of those people that was sort of destined not to be perceived as the good guy uh for the longest time but yeah i mean i think that's one of those cases where i don't know you also have to remember <laughs> this is the first time i ever got a contract to write anything and all i could think like morning noon middle of the night was i'll never get these books done fast enough if i want them to be good and it was like this constant constant terror and and pendulum swing back and forth from one terror to the other. It's like, oh my God, I'll never get them done fast enough. They're gonna cancel my contract. Oh my God, they're not gonna be good enough. They're gonna cancel my contract. And so I would, and all I knew is that it, they had to be really, really good, the best I could possibly do. And at about three times the speed with which I'd ever written anything. And as it happened, that worked out pretty well. Um, not. And it's not something I would recommend as a lifestyle. <laughs> it was good to do once, but um, you know, they they gave me enough of an advance so that I was able to quit my day job or actually two day jobs um, and just do this for a while. Um, I've never been in that circumstance again. Um, you know, the, the fire sacraments is going great, but I didn't get enough of an advance to be doing that. And I'm older. <laughs> I don't know that I have. Um, you know, the marathon kind of energy that it took to do these books really fast and really, really intensively and and hold a sort of quality standard up for myself. So, you know, I hope I'm still keeping the quality standard at a slower pace now. But um yeah, so so I, I did sometimes guys. <laughs> yeah. But you know, so like with things with Chad Fellow is like, okay, I don't have all the answers and I can't stop. <laughs> It's like, I got to trust that tomorrow it'll be clearer. I just got to keep going. You know, so. so how do you That's keep the, the mystery alive? You don't know the answer yourself while you write it. <laughs> yeah. And that keeps some, some extra energy on the page. Sometimes it can be a good thing. You know, you can also get yourself in real binds, but so. yeah.
Well, it works really well here. I think that it does a great job of keeping the reader in the dark too, when even the author doesn't know what's <laughs> underneath the tip of the iceberg that we're getting with Chadfell, what kind of things are going on there. Then mm -hmm. there's no way to accidentally reveal that to the reader. So I, I really That's appreciate true. how you went about it with him and you turned something that could have been a bug, not understanding a character or their motivations quite yet into a feature of making that character really cryptic, complex, and interesting, mm -hmm. which especially works out once we get to learn all of that later on. You know, um, Blake, I'm not sure if your microphone's on. I don't know if you were trying to. It's on. Oh, OK, sorry. Yeah, I thought I saw you speaking there. But, um, you know, you're asking me about other characters that sort of uh, surprised me. It was a different kind of surprise, but I really enjoyed um, delving into Captain Rose deeper this time. Um, you know, he's, I don't know that you could really call him sympathetic. He's, he's, a, he's a mess of a, of a man, but, um, but I enjoyed so much uh, getting to sort of show on the page evidence of why he is an infamous presence in the world. That I'm talking about the, um, the duel with the other ship um, right. where there, you know, that was a, a scene I was really happy with when it, when it finally worked out too. I mean, I, oh, that was a tough one, but when basically everyone's saying the Mizithrinis are on our tail. They've got a much more powerful ship. They're going to kick our butt. What the hell are we going to do? And it's this slowly building, uh, disaster in waiting, right? But, um, and nobody really knows what what they're going to do when when that ship finally catches up with them with like twice the firepower and so on and naturally everyone's turning to the captain and saying what the hell what are we going to do and he begins to just look more and more useless for a while <laughs> and then when you finally realize that he has been working through exactly what to do all along I, I really, I was really happy about that because I was like, this is the rose I was reaching for, you know, he's, he's a nut, he's insane, but he's more than that. He's also incredibly capable, you know, and I finally got that on the page in this one, I think. So. Yeah, that was a great scene in Blaze. You had actually been talking up um, in Captain Rose here in our first episode in the first book. What was it like going through these battle scenes and even some more of these reveals about Captain Rose towards the end of the book? What was that experience like for you revisiting on the second read here? Yeah, my first time reading, I always knew Captain Rose was a crazy character to say <laughs> the least, but he he had a lot of a lot of passion for what he wanted to do. And he also... He felt like he always had a purpose. You may not know what it was because he always keeps it close to the chest. He doesn't tell anybody, but he always had that. Looking back on it, I just got more, more invested into his backstory, especially in book one and, and also in book two when he's writing letters to his to his dead father. And he's he's reliving he's reliving those horrible memories of that. And he's he, he's borderline insane. But you just feel you just feel for feel for him somewhat, and by the end of this book, um, it's just he's he's essentially he is part of the crew. I mean, he's one of the seven, so you just got to um, just got to take it and just run with it, right? 
Right. And even woven into all that tragedy, there's some validation for him. One in that ship battle, but also for me a moment that I was like really absorbed in was when Thasha could actually see the ghosts of all of the captains that we took as an indicator that Rose was a crazy person uh, when he was talking to people that weren't there or something like that or writing about people that aren't there. And then, you know, Thasha's changing as well. And we're still not quite sure where she's going, but she has these moments. And in one of those moments, she can see the ghosts of the captains of the ship. And I was like, ooh, okay, is a little more going on here than just an eccentric, like weather beaten ship captain here. There's actually something tearing at his mind a little bit. And the fact that he's keeping it together as much as he is, is only another testament to his capabilities. And, um, yeah, I thought that was a, a, a great moment as well, both for Thasha and Captain Rose. And speaking of tearing at one's mind, uh, another um, another scene I got lots and lots of comments about was the um, the confrontation between um, Pazel and the Eguar. Oh, yes. Or I guess all of them in the Eguar. Um, That's a great moment. And I actually had pulled a quote from that moment just to bring it up later, and I can read it now for all um, open to that a little excerpt from the book here. Um, so this is where he actually, he heard the Eguar speak, and he's processing it. And this is your um, narration around Puzzle trying to wrap his head around it. Uh, Puzzle had heard many strange tongues and learned to speak them in the five years he had lived with the gift. Flickerman croaked and gurgled, Nunakem squeaked, and Ixchel's tongue was full of somber minor key music. The Argron, the Agrons boomed out abstract metaphors, and Clist and her Mirthkin worked charms each time they spoke. But no language he had ever heard prepared him for the Eguars. It flooded his brain, violent as the waves beating into the sea cave, and a hundred times more frightening. It's like wow. <laughs> you know, we we you, like you get a lot of praise for your for your prose, Robert, in the community and in a lot of reviews that I've read, and I think that's a testament to kind of like some of the really powerful language that you can pull in in these moments. Because one, just the whole idea, the whole abstract idea of hearing a language so different from yours that it's like blowing your mind, right? <laughs> and then to actually have the language to back that up and deliver the emotional aspects of that too is just, it, I can see why you get flooded with so many compliments, just the whole execution of it from the conception to the actual uh, execution, I thought was really well done. And that's just a moment I wanted to, to read for the audience there just to be like, yeah, this was a great standout moment in the book for sure. Well, to be honest, a lot of those comments were more along the lines of like, you know, I don't know, maybe 14 year old boys writing to me and saying, man, those egg bars are bad. I want to see him kick some more ass. <laughs> but, uh, that would be cool too. <laughs> but I did enjoy, um, you know, it made, uh, it made sense with Puzzle's gift that, you know, he, if he encountered a, a being with a brain that was just super, super, super different and then his gifts, you know, his gift that forces him to learn languages, whether he wants to or not. He hears one word of a language, and when when his gift is sort of switched on, as it is a few times a year, he learns that language instantaneously and forever, mm -hmm. um, even if it's 
not really one that a human mind should be able to handle. And um, so when I, you know, I thought of these Eguar, that what do they live like thousands of years? I probably get specific there somewhere, but they're the oldest living creatures in in the world of Alifros. And, you know, I, I think maybe in the back of my mind, I was, I was remembering what I'd heard about how whales can, you know, let loose one burst of sonar basically that'll travel for thousands of miles across oceans or hundreds of miles across the ocean and and these are terrestrial creatures but i was thinking you know what if instead of stringing words together in a linear way they had a way of speaking to each other that like put entire paragraphs or you know entire large contents of of information and whole essays into a single complex sound and their brains were just their brains and their ears were so adept at taking all that in that just a single polyphonic noise for half a second could communicate a volume of information now what would happen if that was shoved into the mind of a human and that's sort of what happens to poor possible there yeah and it's funny because he's you know freaking out and everyone around him's like why are you like compose yourself man he's just yawning and it's like yawning. <laughs> right. he talks on and on and on and then i think later yeah. it's there's a bit of humor where it's like wait you speak english <laughs> you know it's, it's yeah. a, it was just a funny moment you know it's just all of that was uh <laughs> it was a great scene it was fun to write i've always had a thing for large reptiles and i, I can yeah it's I can see why people would, would, would want more, but that's kind of a good thing sometimes, you know, leave them wanting more in this one. Oh, they'll be back, those Eguar. Ooh, nice. Because you, you had, I remember in the first episode, you teased like, yeah, Pazel hears a language that rocks his world. And then I was like, oh, this is it. And just like, <laughs> ding, we got it. <laughs> I found it. <sighs> yeah, it's, that, was, that was really great. I, I love that. Um, Speaking of callbacks from the first episode that we did, uh, one of the questions that we got from the Discord that was asked, you answered with a strong yes, but not in this book. And that was, did you kill a character and regret it later? So I wanted to ask the same question, and hopefully maybe <laughs> we got a bite here in book two. So uh, Robert, did you kill a character and regret, regret it later for book two? Well, I can't say I regretted it. There, there's, there are a couple of characters who die where I'm, to this day, kind of wishing they hadn't. In terms of their, their necessity to be alive in the story, if I can put it in such a, you know, a cold way. Um, with with Diadrelu, I didn't have a doubt that I, I didn't think I should have not done it. I've never thought that. I just thought, God, this hurts. Yeah. Um, it was it was much more that. I mean, I will never forget my wife sitting up reading this book, and long after I had just fallen asleep with the with the reading light on in bed. And she's sitting up and reading and reading, which she rarely does. But she, she just like started whacking me with the book. It's like, 
she's really dead. You can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. Get up, <laughs> explain yourself. Um, oh, that's awesome. And she's still incensed about it. And, you know, I'm still, I'm still sad that Diadrelu didn't have a future. You know, it just, I, I adored her and I admired her and I felt a kind of tragedy enter the whole story at the moment of her death that never entirely leaves. Um, I think it, it, it added a somber quality to the sort of melody of this whole story that, yeah, it just, um, it felt right. But I, I remember so much. First, I felt that a death was coming and I didn't know whose. And, and then, you know, and I kept thinking, and it's not just going to be some little side character. It's going to really, it's going to really kick the legs out of from under everybody or a lot of people that we care about. And, mm -hmm. and I kept thinking, you know, I knew it was coming. And I think maybe it's this person and no. And, and so I, I went through and, and it was kind of by process of elimination that I finally, you know, she wasn't even on the radar at first, you know, because, because I loved her so much and I, I loved the strength she brought, you know, when Diadrelu was around, it just seemed like a solution wasn't far off because she was so wise. She was so, she was so principled, so ethical. And she, she had a way of seeing that in other people and just um, getting them to sort of dredge up the best in themselves, I think. Wow. And so for that reason, you know, when, when I knew this death was there, you know, for some, something about the plot and about the, where I was in the storytelling had just made it clear. Um, but I wasn't even thinking that it was her. And then finally I realized I'd kind of worked my way all around the, the circle of people and come back to her and thought, oh no, 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 no. And then I realized that's the one, damn it. That's really what has to happen. So it was like that. It's tough. And no, it's still it's later that, you know, I don't think it was a mistake. There are others that, you know, I'll be honest when we get there may have been a mistake, but I don't think she was a mistake. It just, just ached. It was, it was just a, a tragedy. I, I, I'm sure that scene is one of the like flagship moments of this book. I know Dylan and I, when we touched base, just talking about the book, that was one of the, of the few scenes that we were like highlighting in our conversation, just quickly reviewing our, our opinions. And um, Dylan, I don't know if you maybe wanted to share like your experience reading that scene as well. And it was that kind of inevitable sadness that Robert's describing for you as well. Yeah. So on my first read of this book, I would say this is the moment where I was like, oh, wow, this guy doesn't pull his punches here. <laughs> he's willing to have some big character deaths and he's going to have these really big moments. It's some of what we talked about. I think we talked about this in our episode where we were just announcing that we were doing the read along that uh, Robert will surprise you sometimes with these moments where in a lot of stories you're used to people being held, you know, at a knife point and being in a situation where everyone has to talk them out of it. And Dre's in that situation and you're kind of, uh, the first time I was not 
biggest serious threat to her life. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, you read that line. It's like it, that he cut her neck open and you almost are like, wait, what is did I read that right? <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, I did. Oh my God. And then it's another moment of like, is she actually going to die though? And this time you <laughs> follow through on it and it, it hurts. It, it definitely hurt, but I was almost, I guess, like proud of you for being willing to, to do it when I first read it. And this time I'll say on the reread, I was, I guess, seeing the writing on the wall a little bit more. Cause I was like, wow, mm-hmm. things are really like moving in the right direction for Jury here. You know, she's starting this relationship. She's really found this family as the whole thing is going on. We're getting even more time with her, these one-on-one conversations with her goal. And I was like, oh, I feel like this is all Robert just building even more attachment and sympathy to this character before he inevitably rips her away from us. So good on you, Robert. You heard Except me, again, you know, it's I never, appreciate it. It's rarely a matter of conscious planning. You know, I don't, I think if you, if you sort of sit down and diagram that in advance, it would at least I could never execute it then. I could never pull it off because, um, yeah, you have to sort of sneak up on yourself to keep the excitement on the page, you know. Yeah, but it, it seems like in the past, a lot of these inspirational moments that you're describing, it's kind of the same process of you set the stage and then you let the story and the characters go where they need to go or you know you breathe life into them and then you let them go and live and you go, it's like oh man this is where this is going that's going to break my heart but that's where the story's going and to to try and shake that emotion it wouldn't be true to the story so i think it's very impressive that you're even able to to get yourself in that position i think it's a testament to how like how many characters were able to feel for in this book and how many plots and conspiracies and layers there are to the story that you're able to to track them all and and let them progress in a way that is honest and natural and it leads to moments like these that um are are super impactful and surprising as they are inevitable so um blaze i wanted to yeah of course blaze i wanted to get some of your um thought process as you went into that scene again and and just wanted to get your opinion on um what your what your thoughts were of poor Jury. I know it's such a huge moment in the book. I wanted to make sure we heard what you had to say. <laughs> so Jury, uh, as a character, when I first read her, this is in Red Wolf Conspiracy, you just grow quite attached to her because she's very lively. She's lovely. She's strong. She um, always seems to know what she's doing. And if she doesn't 100% know where everything's going, she has a plan. And leading up to that dreadful scene, um, I've forgotten my review how close her and um, her Cole got, and then all that bleed up and just made the made that seem much more hurtful. Um, and then you, on, conversely, you see on the Excel side, like the growing um, anger and the growing rage building and building and building, and that's just the climax of their anger. It's taken out on Dree, uh, ironically, and then events unfold that way. So it's kind of it's kind of a story of two two halves. You have Dree, Dree and her colleague on the rise, on the rise, on the rise, and then she obviously with the death falls off, and then conversely you see the Ixchel rising up with their anger and pain. So hurtful, yes, but in some ways it's just the crux of what needed to happen in order to get the story to where it was. But still painful all the while. I wish you didn't do, have to do it, but. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah. And I guess, you know, I haven't thought about it really consciously, but um, when the Ixchel later on make their, their dastardly power move, you know, and seize the ship, um, they probably couldn't have done that without Dree's death, you know. Um, maybe... I mean, maybe a version of that could still have happened, but the, as you say, that that building anger and the sort of the way that um, in the society of the Ixchel, the hidden society in the ship, you know, sh- her voice of reason is gone after that, and it's just it's just hurt and revenge and pain that's really driving that's in the driver's seat for the Ixchel for a long, long time after that. Um, so, you know, they're, when they do what they do and, and, you know, take those hostages and manage to say the ship is now ours, um, that, yeah, that would have been at least very, very different and probably couldn't have really happened, I guess, if she yeah. had been alive. It's almost because like she her death was kind of like the permission they needed, even though she was out, ousted by then, but even still, it was mm-hmm. like, that was that last bit of their kind of parlay between humanity and the X gel that was just ripped away. So mm-hmm. the fact that yeah. it resulted in them just taking over is, um, it feels like just a natural progression. And, you know, we had talked about earlier moments where this book was like, is this a horror story? <laughs> Cause it feels like a horror story. And another moment that was like, that was shortly after our poor Giudrelu, um is gone. Uh, the Nilstone mutates, the rats and the rats are attacking the ship and it's like those moments are intense and i'm you know listening to the audiobook i'm picturing in my mind what's happening and i'm trying to put myself in like a it was weird during that i was trying to picture what like a movie or a show would look like of this scene and i'm like it would be absolutely terrifying because rats are nasty and scary on their own but then you make them giant and mutilating (laughs) people and they're mutilating the rats with not really the greatest weapons and like it's just this horde of them that they're just running and losing ground and losing ground and losing ground and they hear screams of other people in the cabins and it's like whoa this this is intense. And I was joking with Dylan earlier. I was like, it was like maybe 75% of the way through that scene that I realized, oh yeah, this book's called The Rats in the Ruling Sea. Uh, hello. <laughs> uh, I get it now. I get why it's called that. I hadn't <laughs> most of that. I went almost that whole sequence without realizing that, but I was like, oh, okay, this is the rats moment. And man, it is, um, it's terrifying. Just trying to picture a giant rat that's like uh, kind of awoken and talking and rabbit almost. It's like, ugh. Uh, freaky <laughs> it was scary to write too i also enjoyed the, the depravity and evil of master mugster i don't think there's probably not another character in the entire book that um is just quite as you know energetically vile there's there's nothing you know sophisticated about master mugster he's just a twisted horrible religious fanatic killer rat <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I can't think of anything yeah. more scary <laughs> except maybe I make it giant how... size and attack you <laughs> i love how he wants to eat rose's tongue <laughs> his his goal in life yeah, oh, yeah. That, that is something else oh, everybody man. needs a dream 
<laughs> and then you 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 layer on the terror because that gets resolved but then you end this book on us you hit us with this revelation that you know they they're in the they're in the ruling sea also which is also terrifying because they think they're going to die because they're going into this horrible storm they're being attacked by rats somehow they come out of it and what's on the other side but this realization that there are um unwoken humans in the world and the whole like rug pull of that on their whole like understanding of what humanity is and then like being left with that and to ponder the implications of that while we wait for book three it's it's also kind of terrifying if you let your mind wander and and think about that a little bit too it's that there's these almost um these tamed humans which aren't which aren't woken and and people are like well we're, we're just kind of surprised to see a woken human and you're like wait what is <laughs> again as these kind of intense almost this was more of a supernatural horror moment to me and um in a way that the ending of this book and the opening of um book three the river of shadows there's a little bit of a mirror of how I ended book one and opened book two um, in that uh, it's not quite identical, but um, at the end of this one, yeah, there's a, there's a terrible shock, but I think as I recall, you don't even really understand the parameters of it and just how deep that hole is Mm -hmm. until you're into the first chapter or two of book three. Um, yes, because I will but, admit I had to go right into uh, <laughs> right into good, book three. Yeah. So yeah, a, I, I read two chapters. I couldn't contain it because I was like, no, 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 no. I, I can't. So you know what I'm saying, Charles, yeah. right? That it, like, yeah. it at the end deeper. of book two, yeah. yeah, it's it's worse than it seems even. Yeah, you end book two, it's like, oh, by the way, there's unwoken humans have a nice day and then you have to think think about that for a moment see you next time and you're like oh well what is that even like what is an unwoken human like so much of humanity is tied into like what is wokenness and it's like oh mm-hmm. this rat's acting like a human now because he's woken he's kind of human now but it's like he's the woke <laughs> yeah. he's so woke <laughs> but uh <laughs> which is great but um no it's it's we're all we're woke too you know it's yeah. it's not human because it, it, it we would think it's human but it's not and and think like having to think on that it like leaving us with that little tidbit, just the nature of its existence is enough to to tie us over. I mean, it was fun to to have a chance to play with notions of what sentience could mean, and you know, to really to really go into a a world in a setting where there's a lot of it around that isn't human, you know, right. um, and at the same time to say. And you may be human and get deprived of it entirely. And that was the twist that, I mean, I didn't, I, didn't, I think I may have mentioned before, I just didn't see, I, I didn't plan the ending of book two. That, that ending, and again, I, I'll be a little careful how I say this, because if people have read The Rats in the Ruling Sea and not gone on to the first few chapters of The River of Shadows, they won't know 
everything yet. So I'll be, I'll be a little careful of what I say here, but um, we find out at the end of book two, you know, they, they land and they know that some very, very strange thing has been going on affecting the whole world with um, about the nature of consciousness. And that, you know, it's manifesting in these rats that are sort of coming to life, but in an insane form. It's manifesting in more and more animals around the world suddenly blossoming into human intelligence and then having all kinds of trouble, you know, because humans can't accept them. And then they land here, the first ship in hundreds of years to cross the the huge ocean that divides the northern hemisphere from the southern southern hemisphere. And what do they find? But you know, a different, a different um, humanoid intelligent species that seems to be, you know, in charge or at least present. You know, Bolutus species, the Blomu, mm. and at least the first ones they met have no idea what they're looking at when they see humans who are dressed and conscious and sentient and intelligent. And, you know, and the, except for the old, old man among the, the Southerners, the people from the Southern Hemisphere, none of them have ever, ever seen an intelligent human. They've, they've seen humans, but only humans with intelligence levels like that of, of sheep you know, or, or pigs or cows. And the, the children are frightened of the humans that are dressed and, and up and walking. And I figured out, you know, it, I was about maybe 30 pages from writing that scene when I kind of knew it, it was coming. And, and I did figure out that, oh, you know, there's some of this is going to be on the page and the implications are much, much, much bigger. Mm-hmm. But it it changes everything that happens in the last two books, right. um, and and it was just one of those moments of wonderful surprise that you know come along very rarely. That it was like the whole book or the whole story, the whole four book story has just been kicked onto a different vector by this, and um, and it was really exciting for me. I too wanted to just like immediately start writing book three. Um, because it was like, well, if that's true, then 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 this and this and this and, and how are they going to deal with that? You know, so that's great. So that was fun. <laughs> and that was a lot of fun. It's it's just a true. It's a testament to the creativity of the series that I say I've come across so far in, in the two books and then two chapters of book three that I that I've read and like what stands out to me a lot of there's a lot of things that stand out to me in this when I'm looking at this as a series but one of the things that always I always come back to is like man like afterwards I'm thinking about some of these ideas I'm thinking about you know tamed humans versus woken ones I'm thinking about the the Chathran the ship as a setting and all the implications of that I'm thinking about this ancient creature that speaks in a yawn but blows the minds of a human all these things it 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 gets me to to think in a different way and a more creative way than a traditional swords and sorcery might for you know a, just because of all these fresh ideas you bring in. and it's kind of challenging to me in a way to entertain some of those ideas and i i can just see that in the writing and it 
ending it on this just had me thinking about it so much that I was like, you know what, I'm going to read a little bit ahead here. Just a few chapters won't hurt anybody. And, uh, and it's, it, it's just all the better for it. It's so creative. And, uh, and that to me, is like a standout for the series. So we'll, that's completely well done. And I, I, I'm sure anyone that's read finished book two is eagerly awaiting book three, and we can't wait to get into it. And while the show is wrapping up here, we're almost out of time. I wanted to make sure I gave um, Dylan Blaze, I gave you guys um, some more opportunities if we wanted to ask any more questions or talk of share another moment in the story. There's so many. I mean, this book had a lot going on that we haven't yet got to touch. So um, Dylan, I'll start with you. Was there any other moments or maybe questions that you wanted to bring up before we wrapped up tonight? Sure. Yeah, I feel like something I forgot was that you you actually wrote in a few songs. Oh, into thank this you for one. bringing this up. Um, I almost yeah. did the episode without talking about <laughs> we're talking it. about <laughs> yeah. Charles and I were talking about this, so I it's something that you know the Lord of the Rings. Uh, there's songs written in those, and I was just interested to see it come up in a more modern book. I'm wondering, yeah, can you tell us about the inspiration to include songs in? this book i mean i i guess um i don't know where the inspiration came up with except that um for me it was part of challenging myself to um believe in the world in a lot of different registers and uh you know i thought music is is so present in the lives of just about everybody on earth in one moment in their lives, if not their, their entire lives, you know, that it would, it would just, uh, if, if, if it wasn't just like stupid lyrics and just like utterly unbearably, you know, dorky stuff, if I could really make it feel like something that, you know, these people would make music of, then it would, you know, it would be another little gift to, to the reader, I guess. Um, and, you know, I, I, it also was just a, it was a fun challenge. I mean, I think in book one, there's actually, there's, there's some verse that was intentionally really bad, like the, the niece of the owner of the Chatheran, you know, the Chatheran trading family gets up and just rattles off some poetry that she's written and they all have to listen because she's the niece of the owner and, you know, somebody goes, <coughs> drivel, you know, but, um, <laughs> And it, I think it's okay, you know, if if it seems unbelievable, then it's a fail, but it, it doesn't have to be like everybody thinks, oh, I'd really like to have a record with that song on it or something like, you know, just more, more that it, it, it hopefully enriched individual moments, you know, and so that was, yeah. that was it. It was just you know, kind of like, you know, at some point writing in the form of, of letters or in journals and so on. It's just another register. Right. So you're writing these songs and I listened to the audiobook for some of these moments and Michael Page does sing the verses. I was wondering <laughs> yeah. when you're writing it, do you have like a melody in your head when you write it or are you like just writing the words? Like what is when you read the songs, what are you hearing in your mind and how close? I'm was pretty Michael much Page hearing a melody. Yeah. I mean, I didn't actually I don't think I actually sang them out loud except for one or two. But yeah, there's there's something of a melody there for sure. I mean, certainly, the, 
you know, even normal prose, you want to have a sort of quote unquote music to it, mm-hmm. or it, I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with that. But um, yeah, I was, I was hearing it. Um, I remember when I listened to the, I couldn't believe he actually sang <laughs> as well. Like this guy just goes all the way. <laughs> yeah, Michael when I heard that, I was like, I wonder, you know, I have a rare opportunity to ask a fantasy author about the process of writing a song for a fantasy book. And I just wanted to know how far, and I'm sure it's different for everyone, but for your for your experience, how far in the songwriting process do you take it? Like, sounds like there's some some melody in there, which is great. Yeah, I mean, it's a good excuse to sort of give yourself a break and, you know, stop for a day and just try to <laughs> write some crazy fantasy lyrics, I guess. That's awesome. So, and then, you know, the other register, we didn't, it's a, maybe too big a subject for now and for next time, but you know, the, the one other register that kind of comes into this book that wasn't there much before is the editor interrupting. Oh yes. Um, the right, editor's and, notes uh, are frequent, which is great. Yeah, I, I my uh, my real world editor kind of sent me down and said, "Are you sure you want to do that?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, <laughs> "Okay, you know, <laughs> it's not going to help sell any books, but you do it. You go right ahead, Robert." <laughs> I know. Trying to figure out who the identity of the editor was was one of the things in the first read through that kept me pretty intrigued and invested. So, I I like the inclusion of that i did guess right for the, mm. the record yeah good okay. good good okay sure <laughs> Once it's yeah a lot of people a lot of people wrote me letters saying i think it's this and i'd say thank you very much for your letter and i wouldn't you know say yes or no of course <laughs> uh, well we're looking forward to that and yeah, I thought the editor's notes were great, and the audiobooks do a great job of switching. And um, even the like the, the I had a digital version too, and even that did a good job of like cycling through. But Michael Pitch would be like, "Editor's note, this and so now we're back, <laughs> and I'm like, "That's funny." <laughs> he was you know, so was good. A very good like. Here's an aside: the whole history of this family, and they did this and that, and that's why we say this phrase. Okay, Puzzle, what's going on? Is <laughs> yeah. a good uh, a good tangent there. Um, so we have a little bit more time, Blaze. I wanted to make sure I turned it over to you. Any questions or moments that we want to make sure we cover before we end our book discussion of the Rats in the Ruling Sea? Yeah. Well, just let me say first that that ending, learning about woken and unwoken humans, just was more of a hook to get me on a cliffhanger to make me jump into book three than book one was. So bravo and mm-hmm. getting that uh, done. Um, just wanted to touch base quickly on book one. We're introduced to Clues and what happens with her and Puzzle, mm-hmm. how the spell is reversed and she pines for him instead of the reverse. And you get little more hints of it happening in this book and that will keep, that will keep happening. But it's always something in the back of Puzzle's mind that he knows that it's killing him not physically or it's uh, mentally and like emotionally because he he has feelings for thasha and he wants to explore those but he knows in the back of his mind he can't and there's going to be a huge and there was like a little bit of pushback for that and just that tension and how it builds is just something that i i loved reading about on my reread um, just looking back on you can see the hints of it 
Um, and just, I thought that was a great introduction to, and seeing that progress in book two. Yeah. I, I remember an email from my sister. Oh, my sister sent me a, a, a text or an email at some point after reading, uh, I guess this book, or maybe she'd gotten a little bit into book three, but it was just the one liner said, what is it with you and torturing mermaids? <laughs> Like, I'm not, I'm not. It's a wonderful character. You know, it's just, everybody hurts, but you know. That's a valid different. question. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because, yeah. you know, Pazel Horkley. has the um, shell in his body that is another mm-hmm. part of his his link to her. And um, there's like a physical connection too. When it's touched, it almost hurts him. And when he's thinking about Dasha, he can feel her hurt you know, as well. And it, it it's this interesting thing that kind of looms over Pazel. But to me, what was interesting, Thasha was like, you know, you can just cut that out. Why don't you? And he's kind of hesitant to do it. And um, there's this whole, he just, he was so connected to Clues in these moments that the idea of actually ripping it out was almost too much for him. You know, I thought that was like a really interesting situation to be in where he actually is hesitating in those moments where he knows he likes Stasha and knows he doesn't like Clues, but somehow they're still getting strung along in all this and it's very complicated and emotional. And you're like, man, this is rough for these guys. I, I really feel it. That was a really complicated um, love triangle. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess that sort of was the answer to my sister, too. It's like, you know, nobody is actually intentionally being cruel to anybody there in that particular arrangement, including Kloost. I mean, Kloost has it really rough. Um, and But it wasn't like, you know, no, nobody set out to just screw or hurt or maim or wound anybody. But, you know, love is one of those things and just you know it's nitroglycerin it'll mess you up <laughs> so right it's that's mm. true and that's that that's a great relationship and uh, another fantastic moment and man there are so many more that we didn't get to i'm just looking down my list of characters man it's um you know we have we have things like um oh man yeah we have like the whole full breach betrayal <laughs> romance stuff the polylex which i love that's another one of those thinkers <laughs> like added to the list of stuff that just engaged my creativity to think about you know a book that like changes to keep secrets hidden and you know fascinating um you know you have ot and arunus and how they're kind of still threats they were you know Arunus was a much more present threat in book one and now he's kind of looming ominously uh most of the time in this book I mean there's just so many and if that's not a testament to why you need to actually go and read it I don't know what is but and uh, we're deep into spoilers so everyone has read it but you know to keep going into books three and four here we're going to be starting the river of shadows um the, you know the read-along starts now the discord is active and hopefully in a month's time, if we can keep to, if, you know, Dylan and I can keep to the schedule, then we will have our discussion out for you guys for River of Shadows next month. And then there's only one book left. And, you know, Dylan's been praising the ending of this series for years. And I'm, I just am 
oh, I want to get there. So I, uh, I can't wait. But until the mean guy, meantime, guys, thank you all for listening. Definitely check out Robert B.S. Reddick's website and his other works. As he mentioned, he's, he's busy over there writing another series. Sidewinders came out recently. Definitely need to give that a read. Um, check out Blaze's work. He's got a podcast of his own that's really terrific. And his Discord is one of the most active I've had the pleasure of being a part of. So make sure you check out Under the Radar Books and all the goodies he's got going on over there as well. And, you know, Robert Blaze, thank you again for so much of your time and and bringing your audiences to the discussion. It's been such a fantastic journey and we're only halfway. That's the best part. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you all so much. It's such a privilege to be able to talk with some smart and enthusiastic readers about these books that I, you know, gave so much of myself to. So thank you. Thank you. Pleasures all ours, guys. And, uh, you know, and to the you audience, thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time when we cover The River of Shadows, book three of the Chathard Voyage. You don't want to miss it. And until next time, go forth and conquer, friends. So long. Um,